Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. We're a little awake today. That's good. I'll say this. Um, we're still in our Romans 8 study. Uh, we're, we're just reading straight through Romans 8. And last week we tackled 16 verses. And this week we're going to be going through verses 17 through 30. And uh, just so everyone knows, I talked to a couple of you on the lobby last week just wondering what translation of the Bible I'm using. I'm using the NLT translation. That's also what's up on the screen. So if you have that, if you have your phone, that's what you can follow along with. Uh, or else it's fine. Whatever you want to follow along with, it's up on the screen. And I just want to say this before. Before we jump in to the rest of Romans 8 here, uh, this is a powerful book of the Bible. This is a life-transforming book of the Bible. And there's so much truth in this book. And, and as I've been spending more and more time studying just this one chapter, God is just revealing to me how much he really does love his people. This, this plan that was put into motion for Jesus to come down to earth, you can just see God's hand moving through it and, and the hope that we have in him. And today's focus is going to be titled Alive in Glory as we're talking about this glory to come. This, this glory to come in our relationship with God. So let's just jump into it. Let's begin to read Romans 8 verse 17. It says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Let me just stop there for a second. Uh, this talking about, we, we ended last week about this belief of adoption. That I'm adopted into the family of God. I, I, if I've accepted Christ into my life, I am a son or daughter of God. And what this is hitting here is that we are not just sons and daughters of God. We are heirs. We are adopted into this family in a place where we, we aren't adopted into be like the cleaning crew. We're adopted into heirship with God. And I, I think sometimes we can read this and think about this idea of adoption, and it can be hard to understand. Uh, I myself uh, have a real life story that kind of helps me grasp this piece of scripture. My mom had me as a single mom. And she's a very strong woman. My mom is just an amazing woman who, who is still currently changing the world, helping people and just doing great things. But she, she had me as a single mom and she had to make this hard choice of what to do. And so she has me. And then when I was two years old, uh, my dad came into the picture. Now, I didn't know that he wasn't my dad. I didn't know that, that he wasn't my biological father. Until one day I was looking over on the mantle above the TV place and I noticed that I was in the wedding picture. And it started to stir up a bunch of questions. You know, like, hey, I, I read the Bible. It's pretty clear. Uh, and so it started to stir up all these questions. And, and what happened was is at that moment, I was told that my, my dad isn't my biological father. And I, I think my parents thought that there was going to be this, like, overwhelming, like, oh, no, all this stuff is happening. For me, it was just like, oh, cool. No problem. That's my dad. He's been here my whole life. That's my dad. And he pulled me aside. And I remember it's like clear as day. He took me aside. He pulled me out. And he's talking to me. And he says, son, you are mine. You are mine. I, you, I might not be your biological father, but I've chosen you to be my son. I've chosen you to be my son. You're not different than your brother. You're not different than anyone. You are 100% my son. Isn't that a cool story? Dad, if you're watching online, I love you. Now, the reason why I share this story is because this is how this relationship of adoption goes with us and God. Is that he pulls us in and he says, you are mine. A hundred percent mine. 
And sometimes we can approach our relationship with God and Jesus as we'll get what I call the stepchild syndrome, where we feel like we aren't fully in the family. We're, we're, we're different in a way. We're not fully in. And that's not the case. Just like my dad called me in and said that, 100% mine. God is saying to us through his word that you are 100% mine. You're adopted into my family. I've chosen you. I've pulled you in. And as you continue to read, it says this, though. But now we, we've said that we know, to, we know that we're adopted in. We know that we're heirs to Christ. But something comes along with that. It says, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. If we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. What is this talking about? It said, for us to, to, to reach this glory, to share in the glory that is offered through Jesus, we must also share in the suffering of Jesus. Because, because it's, it's, it can't be without the other. I remember when I first gave my life to Christ, I thought at that moment, from what I had heard about sometimes being teached, was, uh, it's going to be great from here on out. Nothing bad is going to happen to me for the rest of my life. That is not the case. Bible's very clear. If you're going to share in the glory of God, you must share in the sufferings of Jesus. What it is saying is that you're not going to be immune to pain. Because you're a Christ follower, because you're a son or daughter, does not mean that you're immune to pain. Because Jesus was also a son of God, and he was put into pain. He physically was beaten and felt pain. And he felt pain of separation from the Father when he was on the cross, carrying the weight of our sins. He felt that pain. We won't be immune to trials. We will go through trials in life. We will have things that, that will put us in a place where we feel like we're on trial, or we're being tested, or we're, we're having this hardship, just as Jesus went to trial. Jesus went to court before his death for a crime he was not guilty of. He was 100% innocent of this. So if Jesus faced trials, we will also face trials. You know, another thing that we're not immune to is we're not immune to betrayal. People are going to betray us. Humanity will let us down because humanity let Jesus down. Jesus had a disciple who was close to him, who walked with him, and traded him for a couple pieces of silver. Betrayed him. So if Jesus was betrayed, we will be betrayed. And the last thing that we're not immune to in this suffering is temptation. Just as Jesus was tempted, we will also be tempted. But here, here is the great thing about this, is that when we share in the glory and we share in the suffering, the key component to both is Jesus Christ. The key component is Jesus Christ. So even in the glory with Jesus, it's amazing, but even when we're suffering, we're in these moments when we're suffering, Jesus is with us. And Jesus has already beaten those things. He already conquered death. He already conquered sin. He knows what it feels like to go through what we're going. He's with us in it. That's why it uses the verbiage share. Share in it. Because we're not alone in it. Amen? As we continue to read here, it says this in verse 18. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. I love this verse. Because what it's saying is that the future glory, the future glory of God's kingdom is greater than our current suffering. 
no matter what we are going through, no matter what we have gone through, this future glory of heaven and closeness with God is so much greater than our current sufferings. What you can read into when you see this is you can see it's saying that no matter what you're going through, there's a promise, there's a hope for eternity with heaven. And that should build up into us this mindset of I can do this. I can do this. I can get through this because I know the promise of God to come. I can get through this pain because I know the promise of God to come. I can get through this trying time because I know the promise of God to come, which is eternity with him. I, I wanna share a picture with you about uh, one of the, a guy that changed my life in a crazy way. This is my grandpa right here. This is my grandpa, Arnie. His real name was Arnold. We called him Arnie. And that's my grandma, Wanda. Beautiful people. But uh, I got a phone call probably about seven or eight years ago. And I got a phone call saying my grandpa was on his last days here on this earth. And so my wife, Sasha, and I, we jumped in a plane and we flew up to Oregon and we went and visited him in the hospital. And I, I, there's something special about what happened in this room as I, I talked to my grandpa. As he's getting ready to take his last breaths, he's thinking it's very close to the end. All he kept talking about was this excitement of being with Jesus. This, this excitement of, yes, my days here are ending, but eternity is coming. This, and even we would play worship music and he would sit in his bed, and he would smile from ear to ear. And his head would just sway back. And he'd even under his breath muddle things like, Jesus, Jesus, I can't wait, Jesus. Uh, this, this idea of what it's talking about here, of this future glory, is greater than our current sufferings. My grandpa got that. That no matter what is happening to us on this earth, the hope of heaven is so much greater that we get to spend eternity with God. That our time here on this earth, sometimes it feels like it's a very long time, but in the comp comparison of eternity, it's very short, right? Now, when I'm saying this, I'm not trying to minimize people's pain or suffering or any of that. What I'm saying is, is that we can keep hope even in the trials even when it really hurts, even when it's really hard, because as a son and daughter of God, we have hope for eternity, amen? As we continue to read in verse 19, it says this. So it paints this picture of a future hope, and then it says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, creation was subject to God's curse. All of creation is waiting eagerly for the day. And when you read and you study this, you'll see that these words can be transcribed into verbiage that looks like this. It says that all of creation is waiting with their necks stretched out, looking in anticipation. Looking, waiting for what's to come. Because the earth creation has felt the heaviness of man's fall. And it has felt the curse of man's fall. And it is waiting for God to come and restore it. It's waiting eagerly, almost like a runner. Like, you know, you go to those cross-country races, and there's always that blind corner. And you're, you're at the finish line, and you're waiting to see who's going to be first. 
Creation knows who's going to be first. It's God. And they're waiting eagerly. Creation's waiting eagerly, looking past humanity's failure, saying, I feel this pain, but I am eager for God to make us new. That's this expression of creation waiting eagerly on this. And as it continues to read, it says this. But with eager hope, at the end of verse 20, if you have your Bible, circle that word, those words, eager hope. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will go, uh, join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as it pants, as, it, as the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The key word is hope. The creation is hopeful for what's to come. And if you look back into the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, it, there's a picture painted there. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it. In, the, uh, in this picture, it paints this picture of, of a wolf lying with a lamb, and a leopard being with a goat, and a, a, a calf being with a lion. It even describes a child standing at the viper's den, but the viper doesn't bite. Because what it's painting the picture of is this painting of restoration that one day there will be no more pain, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more decay. We will live in this perfect creation that, that, that's restored to what it was designed to be, that, this, that these animals would not need to fear each other. There'll be no more fear, no more pain. That's the picture it's painting here. That's the picture that it says creation is longing for that it's eagerly waiting for. I, I, it sounds awesome. I remember, uh, this is a little side note, I'm sorry. I remember when I was a kid, I used to hear people talk about heaven, I was like, so I get to ride lions? That's a real thing? You know, like, that's, that's kind of what was like my thing as a kid, like, I get to ride lions? But it does talk about that in Isaiah 11. It talks about this, this idea of these two things that would never work coming together, because God restores them together. I gotta keep reading, because we got a lot to go, and not too much time. Verse 23. And we believers also groan. Just as it talks about creation, and we as believers, we also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us the full rights as his adopted children. Including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given the hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and confidently. At the moment of salvation, you were given this hope. Look at verse 23. It says, for the Holy Spirit is a taste of the future glory. The Holy Spirit is a taste of the future glory. So when, when we accept Jesus into our life, we ask him to come rule over our life, we, uh, we have the Holy Spirit, like what we talked about last week, and that gives us a taste of what this glory of heaven is gonna be like. This closeness with God. This intimacy with God. Like I said, no more pain, no more death. The Holy Spirit is able to give us a taste of that. Like it says, a, a foresight. It's important there, as you continue to read on in verse 25, it says that we, we wait patiently and confidently. As you break those words down and you look at some um, other ways of putting it, it's almost like it's describing a soldier waiting at the edge of the, the, the bridge, waiting for the army to come, waiting patiently and confidently. And what this is saying is that we are still here on earth. 
This, in Romans 8, it's talking about this future glory, but the fact is, all of us in this room are still here. So that means God's not done with us yet. That means God still has a plan for us. That means that there's still purpose for our life. So we ask the question, what should we do? How should we live if we're called to wait patiently and confidently? How should we live in this? We should live with one, a desire for closeness. As, as we wait on this glory, this future glory to come, we should, we should wait with a desire for closeness to God. To daily take steps to know his heart better. To daily take steps to move closer into relationship with him. That's how we should wait. We should also wait with love for others. That we know as sons and daughters of God that we have this hope for eternity through Jesus. We should, we should feel the urgency of that. The, 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 the urgency of that, that others need this hope. Others need this hope. And the, the best way to communicate that to them is by loving them unconditionally, sacrificially. As we wait patiently and confidently, we should love others like no one else. We should have our, uh, as we, the third thing as we wait, we should wait with eyes on the future. We should wait with eyes on the future. What I'm saying here is that we should look above our current circumstances. We should, we should look above our current standing and look to the future, the promise of heaven. Like I, I heard a, a pastor once talk about this and he talked about a, a ship captain. And he said, some, some captains, when they're in a, a wavy sea and the waves are really tall, as they're driving the ship, they, they look at the one wave ahead. They, they, they look at the one wave and they, they just kind of judge that wave of what they should do. He said the great captains, the, 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 ones that, the ones that go all the way, the ones that are the fastest ones, the best ones, the best captains look 10 waves ahead. They look 10 waves ahead and they plan accordingly on where they're going. That's what we should be doing as we're waiting here on earth patiently and confidently. We are looking to the future, knowing that our current circumstances, our current brokenness, there is hope to come. That, that we, we serve a God of restoration. We serve a God of peace and joy, and that will come. And we look to those times trusting in God in that. The fourth thing we should do as we wait patiently and confidently is we should wait with boldness for God. We should wait for boldness for God. I, well, the reason why I say this is because there has been times in my life, and I'm sure some of us have had this same interaction, there's been times where I have stepped into the background and not shared about my Father, my Heavenly Father, because I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Or I didn't want to stand out. Or I didn't want to be noticed. I didn't, or I didn't want to upset anyone. You know, I, I, I've, I've had these moments, but as a son and daughter of God, we should have a boldness in us that should drive us to speak about the greatness of our God. And I, when I say that, what I'm saying that is what I mean is we should be speaking about how much he's taken us from, how much he's set us free from, how much hope and joy he's infused into our life. We should not play the background with this conversation. We should be bold and proud that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is the only way to heaven. 
And he's done this for me, and he can do it for you as well. We live in a culture where we're almost trying to, I feel like we sometimes push ourselves to this background role. I want to stand in the front and proclaim the greatness of Jesus Christ. I want to stand in the front, and I don't want to do it in a way that is full of hatred or, or judgment. I want to do it in a way that I stand in the front and I say, Jesus is so loving. He's so forgiving, because this is what he's done for me. Amen? As we continue to read God's word in verse um, 26, it says this. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that, can, uh, that cannot be expressed in words. The first thing to pick up here is that it says that the Holy Spirit acknowledges, acknowledge, helps us sorry, in our weakness. We have to get to the place where we admit we have weakness. We have weaknesses. It's very important for us to know this because as a son and daughter of Christ, you are admitting that you have weakness because you weren't strong enough to get yourself to heaven. You, you, you weren't strong enough to fight out those temptations on your own. Being a Christ follower is admitting that it's not my strength, but his strength. That, but it was by his strength that I found freedom and I found this opportunity for future glory. We have to be able to admit that we are weak and sometimes we have to step back, not sometimes, all the times. We need to step back and allow Jesus' strength to lead our life through his spirit. So once we acknowledge that, it talks about the Holy Spirit interceding for us. That when we don't know what to say, when we don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit is that, that presence in our life that will direct us. But you have to be willing to acknowledge your weakness to listen to its strength. You understand what I'm saying? That is, if you, if you have that mentality of I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna get myself out of this, I'm the strong one, I'm gonna prove them wrong, you'll find yourself in a cycle. It's not until you acknowledge your weakness and acknowledge his strength that you can start to find hope for a future. As we continue to read in verse 27, it says, And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. A couple things that stand out here. That God knows your heart. God knows your heart and he still wants relationship with you. Does that blow anybody else away? That God knows everything I do, every thought I think, every word I say, and he says, you know what, I still want you to be my son. That's a powerful thing. That God knows our heart and still wants relationship with us. He also knows our needs. He knows what we need. He knows what's best for us. And I'm just gonna say this. God knows sometimes when we are praying for a yes, the better answer is no. He knows our needs. He knows what's best for us in the long run. Let me put it this way. My, uh, on uh, Friday, I took my daughters out and we were playing in this dirt field. I don't know, they just like to do that, play in the dirt. And they're playing in this dirt field and one of my daughters trips and she's like, got a little cut right here and she loses it. She's, she runs up to me, Daddy, my hand is broken. She's like waving it around. I was like, it's clearly not broken. And she's, she's like screaming screaming. And she's like, I need a cast. I need a cast. 
I'm like, no, you don't. You need a Band-Aid. We're having this dialogue. But how many of us as Christ followers are like that? God, you don't understand how bad it is. God, it's broken. And he's just like, no, you're good. There's a future to come. We're going to get through this. Amen? Amen. I lost my spot. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's best for us. He knows that the decisions that we're making are better when we follow his will, not our will. That's why one of our daily prayers we should be praying is, God, let me step aside and let you lead. That should be a daily prayer for us. God, let me follow your will because his will is greater. In verse 28 it says this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for his good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we know that God causes everything, circle that four times, everything to work together for his good. Three things here. In this everything includes these three things. God will use your past to work things for his good. He will use the the sin and the mistakes that you once made to help others not make the same mistakes. He will use things that you've chosen to do or thoughts that you've chosen to think to help speak into other people's life so they don't go down that same route. The other thing he will use is he'll use your pain. And I know this one is hard. I know this one is hard because some of us in this room have had some really painful things happen to us in our life. But if you believe God's word, it says he will make everything, everything work together for his good. The only way he can take your pain and work it for his good is by surrendering it to him. I've had moments like this where I've had pain from my my past, pain that's happened in my life, and I've had to say, God, I'm done being defined by this pain. Take it, use it for your glory. Whatever, whatever, take it so it can help someone else. Put me in a situation to where this pain, this struggle, these scars that I've built up can be beneficial for your kingdom, God. It's only through surrendering that to him that it can be made for his good. And the last thing it does here is he can make your calling, your calling, what you are called to do for his kingdom, work together for his good. And all of us in this room are called by God to impact the world we live in. All of us are. And I I know sometimes we look, we come to church, and we look at the guy on the stage, and we look at the people singing, we look at like, oh, those people are awesome, awesome warriors for Christ. You know? You know, there's part of me that feels sometimes this is a disadvantage for me. Because God wants to use your calling as someone who's flipping burgers in the restaurant, as someone who's working on cars, as someone who's working in the accounting field, whatever your, your calling is, what your job is for life, God wants to elevate that from just being a job but working for his kingdom. Because people that drive cars need Jesus too. People who eat hamburgers need Jesus too, especially if they eat too many. <laughs> the, the key thing is here is that he wants to use your gifts. He wants to use your calling to help his kingdom. We just have to give it to him. All right, last thing here. It says in verse 29, for God knew his people in advance. 
and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many of them, many of the brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. There's four main points I want us to focus on in these four words here. Chosen, called, in right standing, and his glory. Because here's, I want to speak something to you out of this passage. What it is saying, that as a son and daughter of God, as you've been adopted into this family, there's a certain way you should live. You should live with the mindset, the knowledge that you were chosen by God. Just like my dad looked at me and adopted me into his family and said, you are mine. God has said that to you. That no matter how much the enemy has tried to convince you you're not worth anything, you are worth God's son to him. You are worth that to him. And he, he's chosen you to join his family, to spend eternity with. And he's called you. He's called you to greater things than you can even imagine. He's called you to things that will make an impact that will not just be temporary, but eternal. But what, what, I'm, what I'm saying here is he's called you. It's up to us to live in that calling. The world's constantly lying to you. Even with good things sometimes. It's just do this, just have fun, just get through today. No, you're called to so much more than you even understand. You're called to make an impact on this world. You're called to make an impact on someone's life. Your call. You know, like, my dad isn't a preacher, but he was called to love me. And he did that well. And we are made right. That we are in right standing. Because we have a hope in Jesus Christ that when he went to the cross, he died, and the enemy thought he won, but he didn't. Because Jesus rose three days later and went to heaven and paved the way to be, for us to be made right off his sacrifice. That he bore our sins and bore our shame so we could spend eternity with God. Which leads to the last point. That he gave us his glory. That he has given, given us this opportunity to have a hope for our glory. A hope in heaven even though we don't deserve it. Even though there's nothing we can do to earn it, even though there's not, we can't work our way there, he said, I'm giving you this hope that you can look above the waves and have hope for a future. And if you believe these things, if you are a son and daughter of God, your life should look like it. Your life should look like it. It's time to start living like we believe we are heirs of God that we are his son and we are his daughter. We accept our calling and we live in it. Amen? Let me pray. Let me pray for us. God, we just rest right now in your presence. Just asking for your Holy Spirit to speak to us. That as we wait for this future glory, 
that if we, as we wait for this glory to come, God, we would be waiting with expectation, but taking advantage of the time we have now to move closer to you and to help others do the same. We love you, Father. Your holy name. Amen.